0: Hi, I'm Eric Gurna of Development Without Limits, and this is Please Speak Freely, the podcast where we have honest conversations about youth development and education. I'm here in East Harlem, New York, with Rich Berlin, uh, Executive Director of Harlem RBI, and uh, Chairman of
1: Dream Charter School. Chairman of Dream
0: Charter School. Um, and so, first of all, I just want to start off by saying thank you for agreeing to do this. I appreciate it.
1: An honor and a pleasure.
0: So uh, I was I was mentioning, you know, before we ac- actually got started recording, that there was something uh, quite specific that led me to invite you to to ask you to to be on. Please speak freely um and and really it's funny that it's it's that I had the opportunity to be in a meeting with you recently as I got a tour of Harlem RBI summer programs with some other people and you know you and I've known each other a little bit over the years but um it was the first time for a while I got a chance to sort of sit around the table with you and I I felt like you were more inclined to actually speak freely than a lot of uh executive directors of youth organizations that I know and you said one thing um, that made me want to hear more, and I wasn't quite the context stacks more about it in the meeting there, but I um, thought this might be a chance to do that. Um, and that was, you, you mentioned, um, we were talking about different programmatic uh, efforts and curriculum that you've used in your, in your programs and that you've... Um, that you all have designed or brought in from the outside, and someone was asking about uh, what behavior changes result from those programs being implemented. And in my experience, the there's usually people usually have a pretty pat set of answers to that. They have, you know, well, we expect to see this and we expect to see that as a result of implementing this curriculum. And um, you, your answer was to to sort of question the idea of measuring behavior changes that result from a particular program or curriculum. And you said, um, this might not be a direct quote, but you said something like, I do this because I believe in it, and I know that if everyone did this, the world would be better. Now, I might have paraphrased that in my notes, but you said something like that. Um, Can you you talk about how you think about that sort of thing?
1: Uh, Yeah, I think that There's a lot of thinking and head-scratching and writing and talking about the best way to do things. Um, I I, I think there's probably pretty broad agreement about the best way to do things. Um, And then there's a lot of talking and head-scratching and writing and thinking and talking about how to measure the best way to do things to prove you're doing it. Mm -hmm. And I think people, at least when it comes to youth work... Can usually walk into a room, and in about 36 seconds, you can tell whether someone's doing things well or badly or somewhere in between. Um, and so, in places where budgets are limited and, and staff is already constrained or stretched, and kids are there to have fun mm-hmm. uh, and, and know that there's some good in it for them, you know, kind of um, the amount of energy devoted to, to rounding the wheel. Um, I, I think the delta on that is, is pretty slight generally. And so in our case, um, I think we, we do spend a lot of time being reflective about practice. We spend a lot of time being intentional about the type of work we do. Um, but, but, you know, mostly we try to create environments where kids feel safe and respected are doing something that engages them, and you can usually measure engagement by the number of kids in the room, um, and uh, where they're perhaps building some skills uh, and working together, you know, all that, you know, just take the right, take the high-scope uh, test or whatever it is and, and kind of line it up. And you do that stuff, and that's good for kids. It's good for people. People do it with their own children. People do it on soccer teams in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. You know? Um and uh, you know, and do a lot of that, and, and that sort of moves the dial. I don't think this work is is I think this work is incredibly important. I don't think it's incredibly complex, mm-hmm. and I think we make it a little more complex than it needs to be. Oh.
0: You you said um, you can often measure engagement by the number of kids in the room. So I assume you're referring to to after school programs or summer programs where kids have some kind of choice yeah. when it comes to that, right?
1: Uh, yeah, particularly amongst adolescents or early or late adolescents. You know, anywhere mm-hmm. where, anywhere where, anywhere where kids choose to be, there is no such thing as you know a, a, ch- a youth program of choice that is of poor quality that is well att- well attended. Right? You will never find a, a crappy youth program uh, that is well attended if kids have a choice. Unless, unless actually, it's so bad. That it can be like a place where they can, you know, where they can really like safely do whatever do they, want. they want. Yeah, there's think. there's been some
0: studies on right, some of those right, programs right, actually, right. where there was actually right. an increase in but I would negative behaviors. Right, but I in wouldn't the actually
1: call that a youth program. Right. I would call that some sort of organized gang right. or something. It's a building, right? Yeah, right. It's a right. It's a safe place to be, you know, uh, to be all the bad things that a teenager can
0: be. <laughs> right. It's a safe place to be violent or right, a safe place right. to yeah. smoke or yeah. 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 Uh, um, but
1: that's not a program.
0: Right. So that's interesting because um if you hold yourself up to the test, particularly with older youth who have more of a choice, and you hold yourself up to the test of, you know, they say they vote with their feet, right? So that if you if you're doing something engaging and interesting and they come, then you've passed the test to some extent. But then um you all went and opened a school of your own yeah. where young people have less of a choice about whether to be there or not. Yeah.
1: Um, so the, the, the rationale behind our school was this, is that, um, our programs, uh, if, if we, if we are, uh, immodest, um, and maybe even if we're modest in some regards have, um, we think have anomalous impacts on kids that young people who start in our program at a very early age, um, and finish in it or or go through it over five, six, seven, ten years. Mm-hmm. Universally graduate high school, almost universally go to college, almost universally don't get pregnant. Um, and we think universally build a whole set of of life and work skills which will serve them very well beyond East Harlem or mm-hmm. beyond their days at Harlem RBI. Um, so that's exciting. It's powerful. Uh, I think it helps give kids a chance to raise their families out of poverty, The poverty that they typically grow up in. If they're here in our program, um, that's a pretty big deal. It's pretty exciting stuff. Kids love being here. We have this incredible community and maybe I should even say like, not kids who go through our programs, kids who, who sort of reside in and help shape the culture we create here. Mm-hmm. So it's very powerful. Um, our mission statement at Harlem RBI, the tagline on our mission statement, reads that we help kids recognize their potential and realize their dreams. I think, in fact, that the, the programs that we run, the work that we do, is like off the charts on the recognize their potential part. We really like open kids' eyes to like what they can be in the world, what they should be in the world. Um on the realize their dreams part on the like we put kids on an even playing field or above any other kid in the world, and they can go do anything they want mm-hmm. and, you know if they want to be a baseball player, if they want to be a a stockbroker, if they want to be a teacher, if they want to be president in the United States, they can do that well, I actually don't i, I we felt pretty strongly that our programs didn't do that mm-hmm. um, and the reason they didn't do that uh, is because. They didn't give kids um, a set of hard skills required to be able to do that. We help, we help make our kids incredibly resilient. We think skilled in navigating the world in lots of different ways, skilled at avoiding you know, many of the potholes that, that any kid, let alone kids in East Harlem, can fall into. Um, but if you go to a failing school uh, from 8.30 a.m. until 3 p.m. every day for 12 years, um, your chances of realizing your dreams are, are pretty diminished regardless mm-hmm. of how fantastic the after school the out of school time program you go to every day for those 12 years is as right. well because um, we don't do reading and writing and and maths here mm-hmm. Um, I mean we do but we don't do it the way school does it we're not going to try first of all that's not why kids come here second mm-hmm. of all it's not what we're great at doing um and And third of all, even if we were great at doing it, we wouldn't have enough time to do it uh in in the appropriate way so so that's why harlem r b i is an after school out of school summer program, whatever you want to call it um but if you have relationships with children for a decade mm-hmm. uh and you're proud of yourself for, for being a key driver or lever in helping them, you know, get to college, which, which no one in this community does virtually or, you know, one in 20 kids do in this community. Mm-hmm. Um, you should not we, – we were not – I shouldn't say – we were not real comfortable with the idea that, that they could go do that with an eighth grade or sixth grade or fifth grade education. Right. Which in many cases was, was what was happening. And not wanting to turn our after-school programs into something else, um, we decided that that we had both an opportunity and therefore a responsibility to do something about that side, and that's that's what school is. Um, and then we thought that you know we don't just want school to be a place where you do English, language arts, and math and science. We want it to be a place where all these other things happen. And wait, we've already got. An after-school program and social services and family programs that we could wrap around this school, mm-hmm. um, and suddenly it started looking pretty appetizing, and, and that's where that came from.
0: When did the school start?
1: Uh, it opened in two thousand and eight.
0: Opened in two thousand eight. So, and and what are the grade levels of the school? It's
1: now K to four. It's okay. a to eight charter. I'd be very surprised if it didn't turn mm-hmm. into a K to twelve charter. Well, so you add a, a a class every, 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 every year. Kindergarten mm-hmm. yeah. every
0: and how many kids are in the school?
1: 250. 50 kids per grade, 25 per section. Okay.
0: So you you set out to start this school for the reasons you just described. And then um, what's been your experience for the past few years running the school? I before before I, you answer um, it's it's an interesting process from the point of view of after school programs because you know we work with a lot of programs who feel very frustrated because they're they're so committed to supporting the young people in their program. And they they want to really support their success in school, but they don't want to spend all their time doing remedial supports. And even if they do spend a lot of their time doing remedial supports, they feel like if the kids are in a, like you said, a failing school or, or are not engaged in their school experience, then they're really just working around the edges. Um, and they're trying to do take a strong youth development approach, which the school might not be taking, and they're trying to support the academic progress of the kids, um, which feels like it means they need to do more of the same that the school's doing that they don't really agree with the way it's being done. So they feel like they're in this very frustrated position and, and, and feeling increasingly like the weight of their – the world is on their shoulders because they're, the pressure is on them to, to do it all. Um, and I've heard some of the leaders of those organizations um, discuss the idea of well you know why don't we just start our own school? Um, and but and you all went ahead and did it and have have been successful at it for the past few years. So that uh, you know, I'm curious about what your experience has been and how you what did, you know guidance or advice you might suggest to other after school programs who are in that difficult position.
1: Um, so first, a note on like after school remediation mm-hmm. or even after school academic programs that that exist to fix what doesn't happen in school. Yeah, after school programs don't have the time the resources or the expertise to do that. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a massive waste of time and money to try. Um, that is not to say that kids don't need it, Mm -hmm. right? Like kids do need, need, need to know how to learn, to read and write and all those things. But I really don't believe that you can be very effective at it. If that's like what you're trying to do in after school. I think there are lots of ways to enhance learning Mm -hmm. out of the school day and in the school day. Mm -hmm. Um, but from a straight like, you know, our mission is to fix what didn't happen in school. Well, if it's not getting done in those seven hours, mm-hmm. you know, with four times as much money, mm-hmm. you know, I can assure you it's not getting done in the hour and a half to three hours that you have. And I can also assure you that, you know, the minute kids get out of fifth grade, no one's coming to your program either. Mm-hmm. Um, so so there's my two cents on, on that business. Um, and, I, and truthfully, I, I don't think there are too many people in the after-school world who would disagree with that. Well, I think people get forced into doing that kind of work, uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. and and you know the, for all sorts of stupid reasons, um, mostly mm-hmm.
0: having to do with bad policy. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, that's my well. Thought on that. It's interesting though because I, I recently um, had a chance to talk with uh, Earl Martin Phelan, who yeah. founded Bell um, and Summer Advantage. Um, and now works for an organization called Reach Out and Read. Runs an organization mm-hmm. called Reach Out and Read, and um, we had an interesting conversation about um, the the issue of after school academics. And um, he has you know very strong views on the the, the necessity to hire credentialed teachers in the after school program and in summer programs, and to do really focused academic enrichment work, academic. Um, I think it's funny the the word re- remediation is a funny one cuz it's it's pretty much only used in a negative way mm-hmm. like people sort of cast aspersions on remediation no one defends remediation people defend academic practice and academic enrichment and academic support right, right. which oftentimes takes the form of yeah. um what what what, what would we call thin, remediation fine line there yeah y- yeah I think it's I think it's semantics um but it's semantics based on a set of values, right? So the the, the language that you use yeah. is sort of based on what you value and what you want to defend. But um, it would be interesting to have that conversation um, with Earl or, or with others from Bell who do take a pretty strong stance on that. They, they sort of stake out that territory that we can – as after-school programs, we can make – a difference in the academic success of young people, academic success as defined by how the, how the regular school day defines academic success. Yeah. Um, and you know, they have all their evaluation data and all that, which will, which they use to back up those, those claims. Um, and I tend to fall, I tend to uh, agree with your perspective that you just described. And I do think that in some ways it's, um, it, it's the broader perspective, but it's not the one you hear publicly defended as much. Yeah.
1: Uh, well, funders, right. Well, well, first of all, here's what should, you know, here's what I would say about Bell and Earl is they're, you know, incredible leaders in this field and this work. And I don't think at heart their, I don't think at heart their academicians. I think at heart their youth developers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's some significant differences between the way they program and we do. Um, and, and, uh, but there's some good reasons the there's some good reasons for for what they do and why they do it and how they do it, um, and I think they're probably better at that version of it than anybody else. Right. All that said, mm-hmm. I think Bell should open schools mm. um, if they want to build educated leaders for mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. They should build it all day long. Right. Uh, that's what uh, you know. That's my very highfalutin mm-hmm. and, and unfair. Uh, you know advice which certainly Tiffany and, and Earl don't need from me. Well, why is it unfair? Because uh, like I a sitting a million miles away at my own desk, you know, and okay. chose our own path and like they're enormously successful, incredible, and, and smart and passionate people. And sure. They can do whatever they want. For for us, <laughs> what I should say is for yeah. us. Yeah. You know, our our we felt in order to credibly, effectively build educated leaders for life, we needed more time. Mm -hmm. And the only place to get that time was during the school day. Mm -hmm. Um, And in particular, you know, the only place to get that time and still do all the other, quote-unquote, soft stuff that we deeply, deeply, deeply believe in, Mm -hmm. like we really needed the whole day, like 8 a.m. until 8 Mm p.m. or later, and weekends and summers and et cetera, et cetera.
0: Hey podcast listeners, I'm actually doing an unusual thing and in interrupting the conversation here because I was so intrigued by what Rich said about that Bell should start a school um, and I was so eager to find out what Earl Martin Phelan, the founder and CEO of Bell and uh, founder and current CEO of Summer Advantage and Reach Out and Read would have to say about that, that I went ahead and gave Earl a call um, after this conversation with Rich and played for him the clip you just heard of Rich saying, essentially, with all due respect, if they want to really fulfill their mission, they need to start a school. Um, And Earl had a pretty surprising response. Uh, Remember, when you listen to this, that uh, Earl founded Bell. and He also founded Summer Advantage. He currently runs Summer Advantage as well as Reach Out and Read, not Bell. So his response really comes more from a Summer Advantage perspective, um, but philosophically is is still just as relevant. So um, what we're going to do is listen a little bit to a brief conversation I had, phone conversation I had with Earl and then jump back into the conversation with Rich. So uh, what did you think about what, what Rich said?
2: Well, I think it's great advice, and and I guess the good news is we're actually in the process right now at uh, at some advantage of launching a network of of charter schools in Indianapolis, and in Indiana.
0: Oh, really? I didn't know that. So this is a good opportunity to announce that. It's an it's interesting timing. <laughs> yes,
2: so, uh, I love his advice, and um, and he should know that we're we're uh, we're taking it.
0: And just to be clear, he he was talking about Bell because that was the example that came up, and right, you're you're right, talking right. about um. Charter schools that Summer Advantage is going to launch.
2: Summer Advantage, yep. Uh, yeah. Summer Advantage is going to launch a network of charter schools and we're going to start in right in our backyard in Indiana.
0: Wow, and what what led you to that decision? Was it similar thinking to what Rich just described, or were there other factors at play as well?
2: Yeah, I think it's I think it's twofold. I think we feel that um, we bring excellence uh, to education and um, if we can take what we do in the five or six weeks of the summer and make that the year round experience for children and for families and for educators. Uh, we believe that will be one of the, we believe that our children will do extraordinarily well.
0: Do you see this as a potential sort of evolution of the field of after school and out of school time or, or even a trend in after school and out of school time to move towards, uh, for, for youth organizations that started out as, you know, organizations that work with young people outside of the regular school day or the regular classroom environment, um, starting their own schools and, and sort of becoming the institution that they used to serve as a supplement to?
2: I'm not sure if it's a movement. I think that, that the economic uh, times and realities of most nonprofits in the out-of-school time space right now has them, uh, really holding on for dear life and trying to uh, just continue to provide the, the um, services that they provide. Is there
0: anyone in particular we should know about from our fields who's chosen to run for office
2: um well alan casey is running for uh so alan casey founder of city year founder of be the change is um is running first for um senator here in massachusetts
0: oh really that's interesting i, di- I didn't know about that yeah, yeah yeah wow all right well he might be an interesting future guest for please speak freely then that'll be a first yeah no, he Well, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to to respond to what Rich had to say. I, I didn't know what to expect, but I definitely didn't expect you to tell me that you actually are starting schools.
2: <laughs> well, it's a good reminder, actually, because I've been beginning to have had a half dozen conversations with, with some of the nation's top school leaders, and um, uh, this is a great reminder because it will uh, get me down to, to see Rich and get his advice next time I'm uh, in New York.
0: Good. All right. Well, Earl, thanks a lot. Well, there you have it. Summer Advantage is starting their own chain of charter schools. Who knew? Um, anyway, we'll jump right back into the conversation with Rich.
1: Um, so, so you know, now that I've opined on everybody else's you know wrong way of doing things, um, you know what I would say about the school is it's incredibly hard and humbling work. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that uh, we're just you know for now entering our fourth year. It's just starting to feel like we know what we're doing mm-hmm. um, and is ultimately, you know, for us, not only just another way to make, um, to put our kids in a position to realize their potential and recognize, recognize their potential and realize their dreams, it's also a way to make our community stronger uh, it's also a way to engage with families in a, in a more deep and meaningful way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also a way. It's also a way to expand the concept of learning. Um, like when people, you know, people talk about Harlem RBI as an after school program. I just think Harlem RBI is like a, a learning environment, mm-hmm. and I think Dream is a learning environment. I think our Real Kids Summer Program is a learning environment. Right, kids learn in all sorts of different places, in all kinds of different ways. And most of them are are kind of important and crucial to growing up this whole healthy person. And we're not interested in growing got no interest in like supporting, you know, the growth of the next generation of consumers. We would like to help grow the next generation of citizens and leaders. Um and and that's that's not just being good at taking a test. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a lot more than that. Now, all that said, they better be able to blow that test away. Like that's that's like that's a really important skill. They you know those tests actually do measure whether you can read and write and do math. Like people might not like them, but they really do you know fairly measure fairly accurately, particularly as they get harder and they get better scaled. Like whether you like have, sort of know your Rs. But what does that have to do with? With being, you know, a full human being—that's a piece of of being a full human being—and there are plenty of brilliant people in the world from all sorts of backgrounds, you know, whether whether it's corrupt politicians or corrupt businessmen or other sorts of horrible criminals, you know, who are smart, you know, really, really smart. The Enron guys were the smartest guys in the room, mm-hmm. right? But they had no moral code. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. They had no ethos. They didn't care about other people. Um, that's that's really important to us.
0: Mm-hmm. And how do you, with within the school, how do you deal with the testing piece? How do you deal? You say you, it's important for them to do all of that and also blow the test away. How do you prepare them to, to do that? Do you focus on it?
1: Uh We don't ignore it. So, you know, like Mm -hmm. in order to help third graders be ready for a nationally normed test, you do have to practice that test. Um, Not all day, not all weekend, not all that. But like you have to take time out to do that. So kids know how to take that test. But but it's sort of not the focus of our school. I think the way we prepare kids to do that is we, you know, we have balanced literacy curricula, which... (laughs) Teach. Mm-hmm. You know, we have some phonics early, and then it turns into balanced literacy. And we have nine different ways of teaching reading, which I'll try and figure out. You know, different ways to teach reading, and and if we do that right, and we give kids the skill of this is what it's like to sit at a table and fill out a form, mm-hmm. not perhaps the best way to do it, but a way that we're required to do it, uh, that they'll that they'll do okay. Um, what we won't do is spend four hours a day. Shooting flashcards at them, you know, getting getting ready to do that.
0: You don't torture them, your school.
1: Um, no, we don't torture them. We don't torture them. I don't think there are that many kid, schools out there that. Well, yeah, I don't think there there really that many great schools out there that do torture them. Um, they wait till
0: middle or high school, though. Yeah, I mean,
1: I, I actually, I don't think there are any great schools that do torture them. Oh, you think you said I great think, schools? Yeah, I think you said great schools. Um, no, I think there are plenty. Of, I think there are plenty of schools that do good on tests and do bad on tests that torture their kids. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and they're, they're, you know, there, I think there are lots of ways to do this well and lots of ways to do this poorly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think our vote is for a holistic, you know, the most holistic approach to working with children and families as possible like, mm-hmm. that, that we, to the degree possible we really believe in, in having kids for long periods of time, working with them in lots of different contexts, providing them with lots of different opportunities, skills, and supports, um, and, and building on that year after year. Mm-hmm. There are other more technical ways to do that, like providing academic support after school mm-hmm. and doing it in partnership with a school that that can really move the dial for kids.
0: It's interesting to me that in all of your description of the after-school programs and the school, um, you didn't really talk about baseball. And, and Harlem RBI's sort of heritage is reviving baseball in the inner city. RBI is a national initiative, right? Oh, it's, not, it's not exactly a national program, right? But there are other RBIs around the, pro- around I mean, the country. Yeah. Hundreds of RBIs, really. Yeah. I didn't even realize that. We're doing a little work um, through a program called Good Game with Athletes for Hope with the uh, Cincinnati um, rbi programs out of the cincinnati reds um i've known for some time that that harlem rbi is maybe a little different than the other rbis that exist out there but it's it seems to me sort of telling that in all of this d- description of this you haven't mentioned baseball what can you can you talk about that
1: um yeah uh what do i think about that uh, i think probably because we just take for granted how central it is to what we do. Mm. Um, teams and in our case, baseball and softball teams are the organizing principle of our, of our programs here. Mm -hmm. Um, and in that regard, fun is kind of the organizing principle of our programs here that Mm -hmm. that playing is fun and and playing is that's work for kids. That's Mm -hmm. where they learn. um, I don't know what more I would say about it like that, except that there, there are ways in which like school is just a huge departure from that. And I think there are ways when, when we see our work happening at the school or elsewhere, like off the field, let's just say that. Mm-hmm. There are other ways in which when we see our work being done off the field, the best it can be doing. All the values and lessons of, of twenty years of baseball practices and games are infused deeply into that mm-hmm. culture. Um, so that means you know a team environment where mm-hmm. individuals have to often succeed and fail on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, a game where if you fail seven out of ten times, you're successful, and you need to be enormously resilient. Right. And a place where uh, kids build skills very slowly over long periods of time. And, you know, it takes a long time to get good at. But once you develop the muscle memory of being good at it, it actually is something that you can sort of accelerate in a Mm -hmm. certain way. A place where kids get to lead, a place where kids get to follow, a place where, you know, the set of peers, the team, is a really, really powerful peer influence, and a place where the adults, the coaches, um are also really central to the experience of, of how and why that team works. Mm-hmm. Um, when, we, when we see our programs, our school, our classes, whatever it is, working well, I think we see all the values <laughs> that are infused from that, like playing themselves out in there. And baseball is integral to who we are and what we do. Mm-hmm. But there also is the dirty secret of like, we could We could probably do it other ways, too. This is just the way we do it.
0: It was funny. I was just thinking it w- you could do it other ways Could you do it with other sports could Could other sports serve as the as the centerpiece of a of a program and of a school in the same way as baseball could, or is baseball special as a vehicle in that way?
1: No, I'd like to say baseball is baseball is special for us because yeah. it's evolved that way but why would there be anything special about baseball just uh-huh. like there's there's something special about chess for chess in the schools right and there's something special about soccer for america scores and and there's something special about squash for mm-hmm. for city squash or street bus squash busters or um and and it's all and it's special because they've made it special mm-hmm. and then and then you know there's mm-hmm. sort of this meta and then there's the reality of doing it and mm-hmm. that's to me like know the concept of there's no to me there's nothing special conceptually about it Mm -hmm. there is something special about doing it and having done it right building upon it and and sort of the conceptual thing becoming real and then truly having a life of its own Mm -hmm. my friends at mlb would like me to say there's something special about it yeah um (laughs) but but of course there's nothing there's only special about things that people make special well and there's something special about
0: it maybe to you or to to others who are here and that that right. that that passion and that that but I belief think it's in very something, specific. yeah,
1: very very people specific, very mm-hmm. context specific. In mm-hmm. our case, very neighborhood specific. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we grow our program, it'll be interesting to see. Like you know, can how important is that? Are all those specificities? Because yeah. I think you could also like ask that question about East Harlem. You could also you know. Um,
0: yeah, I mean, I there are other ways. I mean, what's funny, play. as a tangent, it's hard for me to imagine um, football in the same talked about in the same way you talked about baseball, um, just because of the conf- the conflict and the violence of football. But that's probably another yeah another but, conversation. Yeah. There's probably people who are passionate about football and can see it as a vehicle. Absolutely, and,
1: um, and like you know, like I you know, look at uh, I've become a an, I've started Netflixing. Uh, Friday Night Live. Oh, yeah, that's uh, – uh, where are you? Just the first season? No, I'm in the third season. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, you've, so we well – You've still part. got some good shows it's, ahead it, of you. Well, it's amazing to me how many football games come down to the last play. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Like, look, there are lots of things not to like about, you know, Texas high school football and all that, but there's so many things to love about mm-hmm. this coach. Right, right. right. And, the, you know, the way he's trying, you right. know, what he is to these kids – and what he makes the team turn into for these yeah. t- kids and for this town. like right. There's all this horrible, ridiculous stuff about it. yeah. And there's all this amazing stuff about it. So like, you can do anything with enormous integrity and power and purpose. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. you might talk about it differently, but I bet you could have the exact same impact.
0: But well, it's interesting because if someone tried to replicate that, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of talk about replication. If someone tried to replicate that um, and implement the, the Coach Taylor of Friday Night Lights program, you might see a very different version of um, yeah of that and it, it it reminds me of something that I've often thought about because you, you hear about a lot of pilot programs all over the place and the success that they have um, this pilot this was piloted and it was very successful they did an evaluation they showed that this intervention was very successful at preventing these behaviors or whatever whatever and I have come to think that it's not um it's not any of the individual processes or content or, or curriculum that are the ingredient that makes it special. What makes it special is it being a pilot program. That what's what's effective is piloting something because there's the people who come in and, and run that are, are passionate and they're focused and they're evaluating, they're reflective. They're asking people to really buy in and, and try something. There's a focus of energy there that whatever it is that they're piloting Is almost secondary to the to the energy and the focus that they're bringing to it.
1: Right. So the big problem with human services Mm -hmm. is that the humans who provide those services are not replicable. Mm -hmm. Right. Humans are are people. They're individuals, and you can arm them. You can do a lot of things, but if you do not have, you know, an amazing an uh, an extraordinary, almost heroic, like committed person who believes so deeply. In our case, in the youth they work with every day. And if you don't have someone similar managing them, and if you don't have someone similar managing them, and on up, mm-hmm. you're going to have a very hard time scaling your work. Um, right? Like, there's no, there are no efficiencies, no real efficiencies to be had in our work. Our work is is about. Right, a kid with a kid, an adult with a kid, like that's what—that's what our work is. Like it's it's you know people connecting, and supporting and sharing with each other. And you can't like you you know I, yes they're like if Harlem RBI could figure out a way to do what it does for ten thousand people, I'm sure we can find all sorts of ways to thin out some of our overhead costs. And as we grow, we get more quote unquote efficient. But we're not talking about the types of efficiencies that, like, you know, what I can't do is, is turn a $1,500 summer program mm-hmm. into a $150 summer program
3: mm-hmm.
1: and have it have the same impact. Well, and even it, if in you. In many ways, if I want my $1,500 summer program to serve 1,000 kids instead of 100, mm-hmm. I might even have to invest more. Mm-hmm. To do it. I bet I do. Mm-hmm. I know I do.
0: Even yeah. even putting the the efficiencies and the money aside, it, there's a real question about whether the just the idea of replicating is even possible, um, or not possible. It's certainly possible. Whether it's what is really happening there. Right? Well, th- th- that's actually that that leads me to an- another question that I had for you um, before we started recording. We were talking about. Um, some other organizations in the field, and I won't, I won't name the names now uh, as we're recording, but we were talking about the the notion that um, programs don't always live up to their hype and that there are, there are people who are um, very strong voices for their own programs or their own organizations who have um, excelled at describing their program But when you go and visit the program, you find out that it's not how they described it to be. But most people don't go visit the program, and particularly most people who are um, audiences at fundraisers and business people and that kind of audience who might be willing to to give some money and resources um, to help continue the organization, support the organization, aren't necessarily going to visit the program. And if they do, they're often led on a site visit that is going to be a constructed version or constructed vision. Of the program, not just the everyday what the program looks like. Um, do you, th- you know, we were joking around a little bit, but do you, do you think that that's a an issue or a problem for us in the field?
1: It's a disease. Um, <laughs> it's a total <laughs> cancer, mm. uh, and ultimately, it's not a problem for the field. It's a problem for the people the field serves. Um, Philanthropy is totally dysfunctional and irrational. Even even the most even the most rational versions of it hmm. um, are pretty dysfunctional and irrational, and wasteful, um, and policies maybe even more. <laughs> policy making might even be worse, um, in in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and we that's and the people to blame for that are us we accept that right
3: Mm
1: -hmm. i I see funders every day Mm -hmm. Uh, they're very few like you know how many of them you know how many of us are willing to speak truth to power in that way probably not at the risk of our funding um and and by the way like speaking of that speaking of like oh you know this guy's all hype and all this well Mm -hmm. you know what like you know, I, I think we were. You know, obviously, I believe deeply in what we do. I think we run like model work in many instances. I think there are plenty of places we can improve, et cetera, et cetera. Like you know, all of us should be a little bit careful about casting stones. Mm-hmm. Um, how well, you know, how much time do I spend visiting other people's programs? Mm-hmm. Not a ton, like, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but yeah, there sh- there should be uh, there should be a better way. Um, we all should be more honest with each other, with our funders, with our electeds, with our policymakers. Um, um, but but the structure of nonprofits is is a pretty dismal thing generally. Um, nonprofit boards, when when nonprofit boards work, they make like incredible sense. I think they're incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. And, and Harlem <laughs> RBI happens to have what i think is like a world-class board um you know people who really govern focus on policy (laughs) policy strategy resource development trust the staff to be good at what they do Mm -hmm. but ask the staff to prove it to them in meaningful ways like Mm -hmm. like i think they're they're awesome like um most boards aren't like that most boards are are really (laughs) detached Mm -hmm. um or, or in many, you know, or the other side, they're really connected, and therefore, you know, too much like the too much like the clients, right? Mm-hmm. And then don't have the resources and the connections to help an organization move the dial. So you know, you got a really bad societal structural problem. Um, you know, I think private philanthropy is in many instances a really. You know, in its worst instances, kind of a really ugly form of social control. Hmm. I don't understand why foundations get to give away 5% of their assets a year and exist in perpetuity. You know,
0: what should they do?
1: They should give away everything. Like if you like, why do you, what is like, I'm only going to give you, I'm only going to give you enough to survive on. Like what, like what sort of weird, bizarre, on the other hand, it's like, say you have a billion dollar foundation really hard to give away a billion dollars but then like all i'm really going to get into is my thoughts on the distribution of wealth in this country and other things like that um which would really make me unpopular with some of our funders but um you know first and foremost providers and leaders of of provide you know leaders like myself are to blame for how things are
0: how could we do it differently? Uh, how could how could leaders and I, I don't say we yeah. putting myself in the same category, but how do how could um, not just leaders of organizations, but th- there are leaders of organizations who choose to play a more public role, yeah. and there are some that stay in inside more. How could those who play that more public role um, be more honest or represent things more authentically?
1: Well, I think we could be more honest and represent things. I mean, like we could be more honest, right? We could, you know, we could say that your twenty five thousand dollar grant sucks. Like, it, not only is it like not enough money to do anything real with, but but it actually like it's totally inefficient in many ways. Like, right? Oh, and mm-hmm. next year, even if, if I do well with this twenty five, I'll get thirty next year. Right? Um, or you know, the other way, which is like, you know, and we raise money here at harlem rbi both ways and like you know look at 25 and there are people like who come to our gala who write that twenty five thousand dollars check because someone like you know wrote a note on the invite saying i hope you can join and support me i believe Mm -hmm. in this and like we're just serving for proxies you know like okay that guy i owe him a favor he's a proxy whatever it is like that spectrum of giving is crazy like it and it forces people to do crazy things Um, but it is the way our business is and uh, it is the way that wealth redistributes itself it is the structure of of wealth redistribution in this country whether it's a public grant for too little money or a private grant for too little money or a private gift for too much money you know all those Mm -hmm. uh, all those things Um, but that's, that's like I don't. I don't know. Short of, I mean, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Maybe that in itself is is part of the problem.
0: Like, there's a there's an incredible maybe. book that I, that I read recently called Small Change: Why Business Won't Save the World. Um, and it's this little mm, thin yeah. paperback, but it, it really it talks about the 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 toxic model of philanthropy and how it's gotten even more toxic as it's gotten more market driven. Yeah. Um,
1: well, like you know, let's be very clear. Business exists to be in business. And strategically, it is intelligent to make philanthropy part of your business model. For your business, how many private companies even maintain philanthropic giving when profits go down? Like, no, because that's not core, right? That's not Mm -hmm. core. Or maybe, you know, for a few, maybe it is core, but right when you know, when you're making thin margins or negative margins, you're probably not going to be given a whole lot of money away.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And to create a system where like we're relying on the health of a company to, you know, like we're relying on the health of Pfizer to fund health programs, like you know, and on it, I mean, it makes a lot of sense for Pfizer. Mm-hmm. Like you know, it's good business, and and there's no question that there are lots of people at Pfizer. Who care deeply about these issues and sure. world health and all those things. But the way a corporate entity acts is is not how necessarily how individuals would act. Like it's driven by its own rationale. And its own rationale is that it exists to make money. And in private you know, public companies exist to make money for public shareholders.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Like they don't exist to see see the vision of a of a compassionate founder.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So so, and, and that's scary and dangerous.
0: Well, I know that my being a little bit late today has put, made you late, and I, I wanted to apologize for that, and, and thank you very much for, for doing this and, um, you know, for everything you do for kids. You're actually the first um, person I've had on Please Speak Freely who is currently running a direct service organization, so I was really excited to talk to you for that because it's kind of important. Thanks a lot for doing this. Thank you.